Let me offer a word of prayer. We begin our sermon this morning. Our great God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and its clarity. And now, Lord, we ask humbly that you would add a blessing to the reading, uh, the preaching, and the hearing of your word. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. The summer before my uh, senior year of high school, my, uh, our high school basketball coach told my father that uh, this team is not going to be very good. They're going to be horrible. And so the first couple weeks, while we were you know, starting the season off, we never have actually touched the basketball. He just made us run because he really didn't think we were going to be that good until we won about our first couple games or so. And he realized, oh, you guys are actually, you guys are actually pretty decent. We wound up going to states. We lost. But, uh, but we wound up being actually fairly decent. And the interesting thing is when our coach, Coach Al Mastrangeli, affectionately known as M, when he retired, they asked him, what's your favorite team that you coach? He said, the 2003-2014. We, we did okay. We did well. We went to the states. But if you looked at us, we were a very scraggly group of guys. Our best player was a 6'8 kid who was... Uh, Honestly, he was afraid of the weight room. He was as skinny as a rail. I don't know how he scored like 20 a game. One of our best shooters was a guy who only had one lung. His other lung was essentially deflated. And their point guard was this really short, weird religious kid. Probably figure out who that weird religious kid is. (laughs) We didn't look all that great, but he had a lot of affection for us. Because we didn't look good, but we accomplished much. In our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you read the whole book of Thessalonians, this is how the Apostle Paul feels about this Thessalonian church. And the reality is, this is how all churches look. We don't look like much. We are not the nobility of the day. We are not the great ones, the ones that are considered wise in the world. But much is accomplished because God is working through his people. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about the Thessalonian church, he has much gratitude for them. This morning, what we'll look at is his gratitude that the Thessalonians have received and accepted the word of God. In the midst of persecution. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 13, he begins with what I'd like to call some word stacking to tell how the Thessalonian church have accepted God's word. He says that they both received the word of God and they accepted the word of God. Now, if you, like me, have relatives or grandparents from the South, you know what word stacking is. Your grandparents may have said something like, uh, if you ask them, well, you know, Grandma, how you doing? Well, I'm living and breathing. Stacking two words together make her point clear. Or if you have a grandparent that grew up in church in the South, they may say something, I'm blessed and favored. Paul stacks these two words together to talk about how this Thessalonian group of people have received the word of God. They both received the word and they accepted the word. On one hand, the reception or the receiving of God's word is that external receiving. 
talking about how they heard Paul and Timothy and Silvanus come and preach the gospel to them. And they heard it and they received it, but they also accepted it, which means that they not only heard it, but they took it for themselves. One commentator would put it this way, that the people in Thessalonica, that they took it and they took to it. They not only just heard the gospel and gave a small assent to it, but they grabbed on to the gospel message. And in a subjective way, you can say they held on to this gospel that Paul and his other missionary team preached while there in the city. Paul is thankful that this group of people here received and accepted God's word. He's thankful that they received it and accepted it as God's word. I like what Paul says, and it's not simply the words of men. It's not simply just the words of men. On one hand, when I hear that phrase, the word of, it's not just the word of men, I think of the reality that Paul is saying, when you heard the gospel preached, you didn't hear this as just another word of the surrounding culture. It's not just a new message that's out there. You may have heard other messages, but this is just one that we add on to the other messages of the culture. No, he says, this is not just simply the words of men. The Thessalonians would have heard the words of culture. They would have heard the various philosophical discourse of the day, and and maybe some of it was even good and helpful, but when they heard Paul and the missionary team proclaim the gospel, they heard something very different. That what was being proclaimed by the apostle was not simply on par with the philosophical discourse of the day. It was a divine word that they heard from the mouths of these men. What does it look like for us? Thought about some younger guys at my job. Now, I'm not that old, but they're younger than me. Some of these guys, they're mostly single guys, and they like Jordan Peterson. Now, I'm not a huge reader of Jordan Peterson, so... Some, if I say something about it that you don't like, it's okay. We can talk about it afterwards. But they like Jordan Peterson. And some of the things that I've heard from Jordan Peterson, particularly for young men, I can say, well, yeah, that seems pretty good. He seems to tell men, young men to you know, pull themselves up, work hard, things of that nature. If you're going to be a, a father and a husband, take care of your family. Seems like just generally good news, and that's, that's good. The words of Jordan Peterson aren't the gospel. Same thing with the Thessalonians. They would have heard the philosophical discourse of the day, and some of it may have been actually good and helpful to live life. But when Paul came and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Thessalonians heard and said, this is this is something different. This word that is proclaimed by these men must be divine. It's commentator Gene L. Green. He writes this, and I think it's helpful for how we understand this gospel proclaimed to the Thessalonians and to us. He writes, he says, this message was not a philosophical discourse on the means to the virtuous life or a self-help seminar on how to overcome personal and social issues as the gospel is frequently portrayed in our own era. Rather, it was the word of God which powerfully transformed their lives. Paul was thankful the Thessalonians realized this is not just something else. This is not just something new or clever. 
when they heard the gospel preached, they knew this is a divine word coming from these men. Not only was it not the word of the men of culture, but I think they grasped even more that this was not just simply the words of the preachers themselves, that there was more power behind the words than just Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus. Something more was taking place. This is not just the word of the preacher. If we were to read back in First Thessalonians some, you'd realize that Paul at some point in this writing, in this letter, he's defending himself to those surrounding the church who say that Paul is preaching for selfish reason and for his own selfish gain. And I think what Paul is saying here, that he is grateful that this church realizes, no, this is, Paul is not preaching this for his own gain. He's preaching for the goodness of the people that would hear. The gospel proclaimed is not just simply the words of the preacher. It's God's word proclaimed to the people. I had no choice but to think about the comparison between this church, the Thessalonians, and when Paul writes to the Corinthians. Remember, at the beginning of Corinthians, when Paul writes to them, he's actually quite perturbed at how they are grasping and holding on to various preachers of the day. One says, well, I'm of Paul. Another one says, well, I'm of Apollos. And Apollos, and remember what Paul said, he said, well, actually, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. A great comparison of thinking of the Corinthians, how they how they attach themselves to preachers as they preached. Well, this is who my favorite preacher is. Paul says, no. The gospel rightly proclaimed is not just the word of the preacher. It is the word of God being proclaimed through the preacher. I heard one Lutheran pastor and I kind of. I kind of like this phrase. I use it quite often. One Lutheran pastor said this, the preacher should just blend in with the furniture. A certain degree of when a preacher is preaching, you shouldn't even really recognize him to a certain degree because the word being proclaimed is much greater than the preacher that is proclaiming it. I think you can even go beyond just the gospel proclamation, but even the word preached each Sunday. The word rightly preached is more than just a word from the lips of the preacher. It is God talking. Not that I'm God. but When the word is faithfully preached, we must see this. This is God speaking through his word. Calvin wrote this. He says, when a man climbs into the pulpit, it is so God may speak to us through the mouth of the man. The word preached. It's more than just the words from the preacher. And I think the Thessalonians got this right. They knew when Paul came proclaiming the gospel, this was a divine word coming through this missionary team. Hear this word, I think, from Matthew Henry, this charge, I think, is good for us when we come and hear the gospel proclaimed. Matthew Henry wrote, he said, we should receive the word of God as the word of God with affection suitable to the holiness Wisdom, verity, and goodness thereof. The words of men are frail and perishing like themselves, and sometimes false, foolish, and fickle. But God's word is holy, wise, just, and faithful, and like its author, lives and abides forever. Let us accordingly receive and regard it. Paul is thankful that this Thessalonian church, that they received God's word 
And they realize that this powerful gospel that is being proclaimed is more than just simply the words of the culture. But even more, it's more than the words of the preacher. It is the word of God to his people. Continuing on, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says this word that has been proclaimed, it is the word which is at work in you. It is the word that is at work within God's people. The word received in faith is at work in God's church. Now, the question is, as we may say sometimes, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is the word working on the people for their salvation, or is the word working through the people for the fruits of the word? And the answer is yes. It's both. We only receive the word in faith because it is God working through the word by the spirit that enables all of us to grasp his word and his gospel. And also, yes, when we accept and receive the word in faith. It is at work in us to produce fruit. Now, what does this look like? What is the fruit that Paul may be talking about that this word is at work in his people? We don't have an exact statement on exactly how this word is at work, but we can go back to chapter one of first Thessalonians. We can hear how Paul talked about this church and we hear the word indeed at work. Paul is grateful for this church. And in chapter one, he says this about him. We he recalls their work of faith. He recalls their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope. He recalls their exemplary life, their evangelistic zeal. And lastly, how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The word of God is at work in a group of people like this church. We should be able to recount like Paul does at Thessalonians church, the word at work, our life, our evangelistic zeal and our labor of love. The reality is we live in a day of the church growth movement. Now, we may be a little bit past it, but it, it's still around. And there's nothing always wrong with the idea that we want to see our church grow. We want to see people come to faith. We want to see people grasp hold of the gospel and be a part of the local church. But church growth isn't necessarily our number one priority in the sense of just getting numbers. What is our priority? It's that the word of God would be at work among us, that when people come to this place or any local church, that they see the word of God at work by the way in which we love and care for one another, how the gospel is being proclaimed through our lips to those outside. Is the word at work in God's church? Paul continues and says, how do we know that the word of God is at work, not only by their exemplary lifestyle, but even more proof that the word of God is at work is fidelity to the word in the midst of persecution. Fidelity to God's word and to the gospel in the midst of persecution. Starting around verse 14, Paul tells and writes to this Thessalonian group of Christians. He writes that you are imitating the churches in Judea. Now, this imitation is not one that they are looking for. It's an imitation by default. 
Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about, in a, you can say, in a good way, how the Thessalonians are imitating Paul and Christ and their lifestyle and their evangelistic zeal. But here, when Paul talks about their imitation, it's an imitation by default. It's not something that the church necessarily looks forward to, but the reality is, if the word is at work amongst a group of people and the gospel is being proclaimed, you should expect that there will be persecution in some shape or form. As Paul says in another place, all those who live a godly life will be persecuted. In other words, all those who remain faithful to the word of God will be persecuted in some manner. Yet I think Paul gives a word of comfort. This Thessalonian church knows the surrounding persecutions that they're dealing with. Paul says, here's a comfort for you. You're in good company. Company is this. You're just like the churches in Judea. Who were faithful and were persecuted. Remember the prophets of old that they proclaimed the gospel and they were persecuted. Remember even your own Lord, Jesus. Persecuted. God's people who faithfully live and proclaim the good news of Christ will be persecuted. I think Paul's word of comfort is you're in good company. God's people have always been persecuted when they've been faithful. Green, again, the commentator, when he writes about this persecution, he says, while the letter does not give us details concerning the form the persecution took, we could suppose that included social rejection, including verbal abuse and accusations, and possibly came to the point of physical attacks that resulted in martyrdom. We don't know what the persecution exactly looked like. The one I think is most clear for us today is the social rejection. Faithfulness to God's word will sometimes mean social rejection. Now, it may not look as strong as we see in other places around the world. Our brothers and sisters in Christ will deal with much worse persecution than what we deal with, but we do deal with some. And we will. We don't grasp what the culture says. We don't agree with what the culture says. There will be a social pushing away of those who are faithful. But once again, even for us, even for the Thessalonians, you're in good company. Remain faithful. Remain faithful to the gospel that God has given to us. Paul ends by talking about this persecution. He writes that the persecution that comes against the gospel message only has one goal, but it also has one end. Persecution always has one goal, but it also has one end. Verse 16, Paul says, it's the hindering of the gospel is the reason for the persecution. Whatever the persecution is against the church, Its main goal is always to hinder the gospel proclamation. Whether it's some form of suppression or physical persecution, it's the gospel 
Satan wants to hinder from being put out. This word for hindering, I find it an interesting word because it's a word that talks about natural causes like storms and high winds. Say that this is what Satan puts in the way of the gospel. He puts things in the way so that the gospel can't get there. And so when I thought about the reality that this word for hinder talks about natural causes like storms and winds, I finally found a way to use my job in a sermon, so I figured I'd use it. Now, some of you guys that I I speak to often when I come here, you guys know that I'm a a longshoreman. Uh, In other words, a dock worker is what some people would call it. Now, storms and winds hinder my job at times. The storms are too strong. The ship doesn't get in. And so for the shipping company, they have to wait longer to dock and get their boxes unloaded. For myself, selfishly speaking, I'm also hindered because if the ship doesn't come in, I might not get ordered for that day, which means I don't work. And I stay home. And if you're a longshoreman, if you don't work, you don't get paid. There's there's no salary. But even more. When the storms hinder the ships from getting on time. It affects you guys. Well, how? Because when you're. uh, When everything's bare at the store. Supply and demand says the price has to go up for a little while until everything gets back to normal. The storm initially hindered the ship. But the effects led all the way out to the average customer. Paul says that persecution is meant to hinder the proclamation of the gospel, but the effects reverberate out to everybody. Paul says what? That those who would try to hinder the gospel, they oppose all mankind when they hinder the preaching of the gospel, denying the preaching to the Gentiles for their salvation. Those who persecute the church think they're only persecuting the people they are that's in front of them. They think they're only persecuting the church that they want to deal with at that time, but the problems and the effects of that persecution reverberate out to the whole world. Paul says they hinder the gospel and they affect all mankind when the gospel is being hindered. Persecution always has one goal. The hindrance of the proclamation of the gospel. But thanks be to God, persecution only has one end is the judgment and wrath of God. The end of verse 16, Paul says and writes, those who have persecuted the church have filled up the measure of their sins. In one way, this talks about the great patience of God because the way in which I read is think of as a a bowl and God is allowing because he's patient, he's allowing this bowl to be filled up with those who would hinder the gospel but at some point God's patience comes to an end. Persecution of the church continues to rise to today. God is patient even with the most wicked. But God's patience will run to an end. Persecution of God's church will meet the judgment of God. Paul even says the wrath has finally come upon them. And now we're not sure what that means, but here's the possibility is what Paul means when he says the wrath 
has finally come upon them in the present. There's a Judean famine in between 44 and 47. Is it possible that that's what Paul's speaking of? Possibly. In 48 and 49, there's the riots and massacres in Jerusalem. Is that what Paul is speaking of? Possibly. There's the expulsion of the Jews from Rome in 49. Is that what Paul's talking about? Possibly. Some commentators would say maybe somehow Paul is looking forward to a day that would come. We know that in 70 A.D., the fall of the temple. The wrath of God against persecution will finally come. God's judgment will finally come. At the very least, whatever Paul meant, we know that for certain that eschatologically, persecution will end. And will meet the great judgment of God. Those who are rebellious and unrepentant. Persecute God's church. Will meet their final end. That's very harsh words. But in the present now for us God's church. That's a comfort. It's a comfort to know that we are not on our own. When we are being persecuted. But it's also a comfort to know that God hears and sees the persecution. He's patient, but he sees it. God will judge the persecution that comes against the proclamation of the gospel. Let me say this here. The wording here of their wrath has come upon them is... It was not one of joy at the destruction of those who oppose the gospel preaching, but it's a lament as one full of sorrow. In similar manner that Jesus wept for Jerusalem, so does Paul here lament for those who oppose the gospel. For our God is one who does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, and neither should we. We can simultaneously find hope in the eschatological writing of wrongs by God And lament the wrath to come upon those who persecute God's people. Our prayer should be that they would one day receive the word of God. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as we have. Not as simply a word of men. But the word of the most high God. The apostle Paul is grateful for this small raggedy looking group of people. Not great in the world's eyes, but he's grateful for them because they held on to the gospel of God. And that's the way God looks at us as we remain faithful, not on our own strength, but through the work of the spirit. We don't look like much. But we hold on to the gospel. Through the power of the Spirit, not as simply the words of men, but for what it truly is, the Word of God. Let us give thanks for this good Word of God to us. Our Lord, we thank you for your gospel message. We thank you for this good news proclaimed to us. The good news of your Son. His life and his death and his resurrection. Through him we have forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. 
We are adopted and brought into your covenant family to be your people and you being our God. Thank you, our great God, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.